Well, this morning we're going to read from the book of Exodus to begin with, Exodus chapter 20, and then we're going to flip over just after Exodus chapter 20 into Mark chapter 9, but we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 20, and we're starting this new series that we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at how they're ten words of life. So Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through to 3. And then we're going to flip over into Mark. And then a little while later, Peter's going to come and preach to us from these passages. So Exodus chapter 20, this is God's word to us this morning. We're so thankful for it because it's true and we can trust it. So Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. Then flip over with me, please, to Mark chapter 9. And Mark chapter 9, we're going to begin to read at verse 1. Mark 9 and verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Great. If you have a Bible with you, please do open it to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be thinking about this first commandment this morning. In October 2017, YouGov published the results of a poll asking the British public about the importance of the Ten Commandments. Now, I know that if the last few years have taught us anything, it's that we should read all polls with a certain degree of caution. Nonetheless, the results were interesting. The commandments that people thought were most important were Numbers 6 and 8, do not murder and do not steal. And the first of the commandments, the one that we're thinking about this morning, you shall have no other gods before me, was deemed among the least important. Only 20% of those surveyed believed that this was still an important concept in modern Britain. Even amongst Christians who were surveyed, this commandment wasn't seen as all that big a deal. Just 36% of those who identified as Christians believed the first commandment was or is important for today. I'm sure those statistics aren't particularly surprising to us. Perhaps what they reveal is that while there is still an appreciation for at least some of the moral law laid out for us in the Bible, really for other parts there is still widespread apathy 
And of course, the thing about these commandments is that we aren't at liberty to pick and choose which ones we think are important and which ones aren't. And this first commandment in particular is really the foundation, the bedrock upon which all of the other commandments are built. In that sense, we cannot divorce the other nine commandments from this first commandment. They only really make sense when we appreciate them and understand them in the way that God has given them to us. So as we think about this first commandment this morning, I want to draw out three things that I think God wants us to see. First of all, we must worship God alone. Then secondly, we'll see the emptiness of idolatry. And thirdly, we are to turn to Jesus uniquely. So worship God alone then, first of all. Notice that that this commandment is predicated both on who God is and what he has done for his people. If you look at verse 2, before God issues a single command to the people of Israel, he reminds them of who he is and what he has done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God has claim over these people because he alone has rescued these people. And so one of the things that I'm sure you will hear us say time and time again in this series is that these commandments come to a people who have already been rescued. God brought them out of Egypt. He sent the plagues. He defeated Pharaoh and his magicians and his army. He opened the Red Sea. He put them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself. And so when we read the Ten Commandments, We need to remember that they are not the means by which people earn their salvation. They are loving instructions given so that these people might flourish as the rescued people of God. And that principle established for us here is a really important one. Christianity is not obey the rules, then you'll be forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning and you think that's what Christianity is about. That is not biblical Christianity. Christianity says, because I know I have been rescued and forgiven, therefore I will obey. That gospel principle is laid out really clearly for us here right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment and all the subsequent commandments are predicated on the truth about who God is and what he has done. That's really important for us. And so having reminded his people of that truth, God then tells them in verse 3, that they are to have no other gods before him. Now we have to understand that what God was saying to his people here was unique in the ancient world. Other peoples worshipped many gods, but Israel were to worship one God alone. And they were to worship him out of the conviction that he alone was the living and the true God and that all of the other gods that all of the other peoples worshipped were not real. So in that sense, this commandment was just as controversial then in its original context as it is now in our pluralistic, relativistic culture. Think about it, right? In Egypt, where they had just come from, these people had been exposed to the worship of many different gods. And in the land they are about to possess, the promised land of Canaan, they will once again be exposed to the worship of many false gods, Baal, Ashtoreth, and the like. And it's into that polytheistic culture, a culture of many gods, that God is saying you can only have one God. In fact, he is saying there is only one God, and you must worship me and me alone. So here is what the God of the Bible is revealing to us about himself. 
There is one God. That is the truth. And this God has revealed himself to us in his word and fully and finally through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, well, that sounds very exclusive. Yes, the God of the Bible is making an exclusive truth claim about himself, namely that he alone is God. And as such, he alone is worthy of our worship. We might feel that we we live in a cultural moment where it is hard to say those things. It's going to get harder to say those things. Or we might feel that we live in a cultural moment where it's narrow-minded to believe those things. We need to understand this morning that it has always been controversial for the people of God to believe this about God. And in that regard, the pressures we face today are not particularly new pressures. And similarly then, the temptations we face are not particularly new temptations. Then, as it is now, the temptation for God's people was to worship Yahweh, God, alongside all of these other gods from the culture around them. And if you read the Old Testament story, what transpires is that time and time again, the people of God find themselves worshiping Yahweh while at the same time worshiping all of these other pagan gods. And when they do that, they are breaking this first commandment. Like I said, their temptation is our temptation. Tim Keller really helpfully speaks about this. He says, the great danger for us, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel nothing is wrong, is not that we become atheists, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts. I think those are really prophetic words for the church in the West today. The great danger for most of us is not that we will become atheists, but that we will be content with asking God to co- coexist alongside all of the other things that we really want to live our lives for. I came across a little story during the week, a story of a, an Iranian Christian couple, Iran, the fastest growing church in the world, by the way, an Iranian Christian couple who had been living in the United States. They'd moved there because it was safer for them to be Christians there than it was in Iran. But after a couple of months, they decided to move back to Iran. And here's what the wife said to her husband. There is a satanic lullaby here. All the Christians are sleepy, and I too am beginning to feel sleepy. When we compromise, when we become content to place God alongside all of the other gods in our lives, then we become sleepy and impotent Christians. And this temptation to ask God to coexist with the idols of our hearts is this subtle temptation for the Christian today. Most of us, if we're honest, we're, we're happy to have a little bit of God in our lives. Most of you wouldn't be here this morning if you weren't at least somewhat interested in God. And what we find ourselves doing is we live our lives like they're the little pie in the game, Trivial Pursuit. You know Trivial Pursuit. There's a picture of it on the screen. You play the game and the objective is to try and fill that little pie with all of the different pieces We live our lives as if our lives are that little pie and we try and fill them with lots of different things, our job, sport, family, leisure time, school, socializing. And if we're honest, sometimes we're happy just to have a little Jesus piece as if having a little Jesus piece will mean that we have a well-rounded life 
and we become content with asking him to coexist alongside all of the other pieces that make up the pie of our lives. Except the first commandment doesn't work like that. I don't know if you've noticed, but the first commandment uniquely outlines the kind of relationship that we are to have with God. The other nine commandments are telling us what we can do and not do, but this one isn't. It is establishing the very relationship that we are to have with God. It is outlining for us how we are to center our very existence on him. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you cannot be content just to have me as a little slice of the pie that makes up your life. I am the one who must give all of your life meaning because I am the one who has given you your very life. I am the one who has rescued you so that you can have newness of life. I am the one who promises you everlasting life. God alone is God. And as such, he alone is worthy of our worship. And so he lovingly commands us that we must have no other gods before him. That leads us on then to think a little bit more about our hearts and the emptiness of idolatry in particular. It strikes me that we can use that word idolatry and not always describe it well or understand exactly what it means. The Heidelberg Catechism is helpful for us here. There's a question in it which asks, what is idolatry? And the answer, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. If we were to simplify that, we might say that idolatry is making anything in our lives more important to us than God. And of course, we're not meant to read this first commandment and think that idolatry was just a problem for a primitive, ignorant people back in the Old Testament. We're meant to see that this is still very much a problem for modern people. Whether or not we're Christians here this morning, we all have problems with idols in our hearts. And when we begin to grasp what the Bible is teaching us about idolatry, when we begin to really understand that, I think we understand more of the nature of sin. You see, biblically speaking, sin is not just what we do and don't do. It's not just about our behavior. Sin is about what we love and don't love. Sin is about our wants, our desires. Sin is about what we worship and don't worship. There was an American author, I've used this before, in Hill Street called David Foster Wallace, who gave a graduation speech in 2005 to a group of high school students. And in his speech, he said this, imagine being at this graduation, hearing these words. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you will never feel you have enough. You worship your body and, if you, and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally bury you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
Those are incredible words. Tragically, just a few years after saying those words, David Foster Wallace took his own life. As far as we can tell, he never did come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, despite the fact that he had such a powerful and poignant insight into the reality of the human heart. One of the things that that quote helps us to understand is that we have been made for worship. It is part of our DNA as human beings. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning, and the question that as Christians we have to keep coming back to again and again, is what am I really worshiping? Who or what am I centering my life on? Is there anything or anyone in my life right now that is more important to me than God? Let me, let me tell you how your life will pan out in the long run if you live for something other than God. These are perhaps some of the big idols that we might be struggling with here this morning. If you center your life on finding a partner, you will be needy and insecure. Eventually, you will be dependent on them, perhaps even jealous and controlling. Their problems will be overwhelming to you, and you will crush them with completely unrealistic expectations. If you center your life on having the perfect family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or they have no real life of their own. Either way, you will end up disappointed and heartbroken. If you center your life on work and career, you will be a workaholic and a shallow person. At worst, you might lose family and friends and have a life empty of significant relationships. On top of that, if your career goes poorly, you will be crushed. If you center your life on money and possessions, you will be eaten up by worry and comparison. At worst, you might even do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, and eventually that will blow up your life. If you center your life on pleasure and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something that will be really harmful for you, and that addiction will slowly but surely cause your life to spiral out of control. If you center your life on politics or a particular religious identity, you will find yourself constantly blaming and bemoaning the other side, and you may well sacrifice truth and integrity for the sake of political preference, and you will end up either bitter or cynical or both. And if you center your life on relationships and approval, you will be easily hurt by criticism, you will be addicted to social media, you will fear confronting others, and ultimately you will be a useless friend. I wonder, do you, do you recognize yourself? and any of your idols in that list. I wonder this morning, if it was real, and if it was here, what is it that you would see in the mirror of Erised? What is the most important thing in the whole world to you, perhaps even more important than God himself? One of the things that the Bible shows us over and over again, and I hope it was clear from that list, actually, is that idolatry always makes our lives worse, even though we become convinced that it will make our lives better. The verse in the Bible that often comes to mind when I think about the perils of idolatry is tucked away in the book of Jonah, actually. When Jonah prays from the belly of the great fish, there's this little line in chapter two, verse eight, where he prays, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What's he saying? He's saying that when we cling to things that we think are going to make our lives better, we are deceiving ourselves 
because those very same things are slowly but surely suffocating us. Not because they are bad things in and of themselves, like we were saying with the boys and girls, but because when we make good things God things, they become harmful things. And what's more, they are powerless to save us from anything. And so in this first commandment, God is warning us against clinging to idols. And he is doing so because he loves us and because he has our best interests at heart. So we should listen to him and obey him. That leads us then finally to think about the importance of turning to Jesus uniquely. You see, it's not enough just to identify our idols, nor is it enough just to root them out of our hearts. We must plant in their place a love for Jesus. We must reorder our hearts so that Jesus is the object of our worship. How do we do that? It's probably a sermon in itself, but we do it by remembering. We began this morning by saying that God reminds his people of who he is and what he has done before he gives them these commandments. If we are to shun idolatry and worship Jesus uniquely, then we too need to remember who he is and what he has done for us. Specifically, we need to remember that he is the God-man who has paid the price for our idolatry through his death on the cross. You see, Jesus knows all about your failure to obey the first commandment. But the good news for us this morning is that he has obeyed perfectly where we couldn't. And he has died in our place, taking the punishment for our failure to obey him so that in him we can have forgiveness and the hope of life everlasting. And so as New Testament believers, we can read this first commandment this morning knowing that it has been transformed by the coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, he is presented to us as the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1. In John's gospel, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus has the audacity to say, if you know me, then you know God. If you follow me, if you love me, if you worship me, then you're worshiping God. And so by implication, if you do not know God in Christ, then you do not know God. The coming of Jesus has changed everything. The New Testament writers could not be clearer. He is God come amongst his people. And one of the events in the Gospels where this truth is spelled out most clearly for us is also an event which harks back to the giving of this first commandment. It is the, the passage that was read for us in Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration. I don't know if you noticed it when John read it, but here we have another mountain. We have the voice of God speaking audibly again to his people. There are echoes of Exodus everywhere here. And the same God who said, you shall have no other gods before me in Exodus 20, now says to his people, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What is this teaching us? It's teaching us ultimately that if we are to obey the first commandment, if we are to have no other gods before the one true God, then as Christians, we are to love, listen to, and obey Jesus above all else. What does it look like to worship Jesus? He is the one that we are to adore. 
We are to praise him and treasure him and be devoted to him above all else. Jesus is the one that we are to trust. We are to count on him above all else. In all of life's ups and downs and triumphs and disasters and uncertainties, we are to trust him. Jesus is the one that we are to look to. We are to call on him in moments of despair and delight, whether we are riding the wave of, dis- of encouragement or stuck in the doldrums of discouragement. And then Jesus is the one that we are to thank. I wonder when was the last time you, you thanked Jesus? We're to recognize that everything we enjoy in this life and everything that we have to look forward to in the life to come is from him. That's what it looks like to worship Jesus. That's what it means to have no other gods before him. And it's as we worship Jesus, remembering who he is and what he's done, then and only then will we see the idols in our hearts begin to dissipate and the control that they have over our hearts loosen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray for God's help to worship Jesus so that we might honor him above all else. Heavenly Father, your kindness and love are beyond all thought, far exceeding our wildest dreams. But God, we are not like you. Our lips might confess devotion to you, but our hearts are slow to follow our words. And if we're honest, we are reluctant to obey you with our whole lives. We confess to you this morning our idolatrous hearts. We confess that we do cherish many things far more than we love you, and we spend hours each day worshiping at the feet of other gods. Father, please forgive us this morning. And Father, we ask too that you will make the Lord Jesus Christ beautiful to us. We ask that you will satisfy our minds with true knowledge of him. But more than that, you will set our hearts on fire with deep and profound love for him so that we can worship him above all else. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.